All right, we're in Matthew chapter 26, starting at verse 47, as we continue our study of the Gospel of Matthew. And we've been comparing other other, um, Gospels for a harmony of what happened to Jesus in his last days, um, his last hours before he was crucified, and then, of course, he rose. Chapter 26, verse 47, starting this way, And while he yet spake, lo, Judas, one of the twelve, came, and with him a great multitude with swords and staves from the chief priests and elders of the people, that he that betrayed him gave them a sign, saying, Whomsoever I shall kiss, that same as he hold him fast. And forthwith he came to Jesus and said, Hail, Master, and kissed him. And Jesus said unto him, Friend, wherefore art thou come? Then came they and laid hands on Jesus and took him, and behold, one of them which were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and smote off his ear. Then said Jesus unto him, Put up again thy sword into his place, for all they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. Thinkest thou that, that I cannot now pray to my Father, and he shall presently give me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then shall the scriptures be fulfilled that thus it must be? In the same hour Jesus said to the multitudes, Are you come out as against a thief with swords and staves for to take me? I sat daily with you in the temple, teaching in the temple, and ye laid no hold on me. But all this was done, that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. They all, the disciples, forsook him and fled. I'm going to read a parallel verse for you, a section for you in John chapter 18, starting at verse 4, going through verse 12. It says this, Jesus therefore, knowing all things, oops, yeah, Jesus therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom seek ye? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus saith unto them, I am he. Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with them. He, as soon as he said unto them, I am he, they went backward and fell to the ground. Then asked he again, Whom seek ye? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. If, if therefore you seek me, let these go their way. That the saying might be fulfilled which he spake, Of them which thou gavest me have I lost none. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it, smote the high priest's servant, cut off his right ear, and then the servant's name was Malchus. Then said Jesus unto Peter, Put up thy sword into the sheath. The cup which my father hath given me, shall I not drink it? Then the band and captain of the officers took Jesus and bound him and led him away to Annas first. I'll just stop there. So uh, the, the, the admission that one out of the twelve disciples, apostles, the varied apostles themselves, the admission that one out of those twelve decided that Jesus was worthy to be betrayed, at least initially, uh, would be used today as an argument against him. Somewhat similar to Michael Bolton coming out against Donald Trump and writing a book against him when he had been in his inner circle. And that's the way that it's been used in the media. And certainly people would use Judas Iscariot and his betrayal as an argument against the Messiah, you know? But it's all a fulfillment of prophecy. It had to happen this way. And the Bible did tell us that it would be this way indeed. And so uh, that just proves Jesus. It just proves that he is Jesus because the Old Testament prophecies had said that he would be betrayed. And Jesus himself had said that he would be betrayed. He said one of the 12 would betray him. And so it only underscores the reality of who Jesus is. So some of the seeming failures of Christianity are actually their most glorious success. The crucifixion itself would seem like the most dismal failure of Christ, but that is his ultimate triumph. That's why he came. That was, that's what he's all about. 
So there's people that detract from us and they would try to take away, well, people don't listen to you or there's th- people in your family that aren't right or there's people around you that don't like you, you know, and they would use that as a detractor from what we are and the message that we're trying to present. And the problem with that idea that they don't not seeing it through uh, is the Bible itself says that we all would be reproached for the name of Christ, right? And that we all share his reproach. Um, the uh, rejection of the religious leaders as, as well as, as foretold for him is for us. The Bible told us in, Ma- in Isaiah chapter 53 that he was despised and rejected of men. And Jesus said uh, that uh, you, all, you'll be hated of all nations for my name's sake, particularly for his name's sake. There's a lot of even religious Christianity, but they're not focused on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And so they want to even persecute the churches that are and not listen to them. There's soft persecution where they just ignore and, and sideline. Then there's hard persecution where they actually do things uh, against them uh, outright. But uh, the rejection of the leaders against us would also be something that we need to recognize. Instead of it putting you back on your heels, you need to realize this is the, the lot of a child of God because this was the lot of the ultimate child of God, Jesus Christ. Now, remember, though, that the multitude here that comes with swords and staves, not all of them fully understand what they're doing. There's a lot of people even in the, in the rallies and the things that are going on around the world right now against uh, racism. A lot of people don't realize what the core problems are. They don't recognize that this is a, is a pitch by communists to overthrow America and to destabilize it and to divide and to conquer uh, us in this United States, this, uh, this best uh, country uh, politically in the world that's ever been. Uh, you know. But that being what it is, the multitude is some of them just, they don't know and they, they, they do care about, maybe some of them are just virtue signaling Many of them do care about uh, racial discrimination and so on, but they're duped. But uh, those are the ones, the ones that are duped, the ones that don't understand. In my opinion, those are the ones that we want to reach for. Those ones that don't understand. Those are the ones we, we, we need to reach because they, they, you know, they want to do what's right, but they don't know what right is sometimes. And they don't understand how they're being channeled into directions that aren't really for the cause that they think that they're fighting for but there were swords and staves in the crowd, and that's probably because the Roman soldiers would be freely a- able to have swords. The Jewish men, not so much. And so the sword that was held, that was amongst the disciples, they had, could only have one sword. That was probably a contraband weapon amongst them. Because remember, there was a zealot amongst them. And so they had, here's a sword. And that would be like us owning, you know, uh, a, a gun that was fully automatic in America now. Uh, because we want the military to have it, and we can't be having the citizenry having the same firepower as the military, because you know, of the law enforcement is the argument. Because what are you trying to do? Overthrow the government? You know, that's the argument. I realize that we, sometimes we need to be protected from adverse government. I understand that. But then the staves uh, probably uh, would refer to any wooden implement that just somebody would grab a club or a staff that they could. Uh, grab to try to stop Jesus. And uh, in verse 48, it tells us something about uh, what happened. <clears throat> says that, uh, now he that betrayed them gave him a sign, saying, whomsoever I shall kiss, that same as he, take him and leading him away. The, the traitors definitely uh, 
they must have been insiders and confidants. When you have someone that betrays you, that is someone that first must gain your confidence. Someone that claims they have an inside track on what you think and what you are and what you do. That's that person that then is your traitor. And so uh, there's a saying amongst treacherous people that you hold your friends close and your enemies closer. Because that's the way that they deal. A simpleton like me who wants to just be you know, real with people. We don't try to befriend people that uh, you know, we know are absolutely our enemies. We just treat them with respect and pray for them, but we're not going to try to get an inside track so we can blackmail them or anything like that or, or try to uh, do what Judas Iscariot did. So it tells us in, in, uh, in Psalm 41, verse 9, when it refers to this Judas, that this is a fulfillment itself of prophecy. I don't know if everybody is aware of that, but even this degree of the, the life of Jesus is foretold. says, uh, Yea, mine own familiar friend in whom I trusted, which did eat of my bread, hath lifted up his heel against me. Now the person that is the one that is the traitor, that makes it all the more painful, right? When it's the person that you thought you could trust. Amen? But that's what makes it more, more, more treacherous. right? And, and think about this. Jesus himself, in his humanity, could feel the pain of this betrayal. Now, he knew it needed to happen, but as a human being, just like you or me, that deep betrayal, that someone that he thought he could, could, could love and trust turned against him was actually his enemy all along. It's like ripping out the foundation from underneath you, you know? So Jesus knows what it feels like to be betrayed. He knows all about it. And uh, the pain of Judas' re rejection was there because of his familiarity. And all God's people will face similar pain. Jesus told us that we would be, be betrayed in the last days by, well, not even just the last days, the days of Jesus after he, he left. Uh, there was those that betrayed one another. But that the disciples would be betrayed by their own family members to turn them into being put to death. This is how treacherous it can become. Somebody that's supposed to be on your, on your side and then they would turn you into whatever authorities to do that. And that's historically been true. And it takes place in other places in the world right now where people are actually uh, causing their own family members to be given up. Say, for instance, you were in North Korea and you, somebody in your family was a Christian. And uh, that's, a, that's a crime against the state. So what happens to your family if you uh, commit this crime against the state is the family, the whole family, anybody that could have known about it, is grossly punished. Some of them are put to death. Some of them are just put in, in work camps, re-education centers. But uh, they're facing starvation. They're facing torture. They're facing terrible lives. And so there's an incentive to turn your family members in. What a horrible, horrible system. Ain't that the devil? You know? But it's fear. And people in America don't realize it's their social fear that causes them to betray the Christians because they don't want to stand out and say, you know, the Christians really are doing what's right. We need to stand behind these people. Instead, they're like, well, I, 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 if it's not popular, I, I want to distance myself. And one of the ways I can do that is to betray these people. So we have famous people that used to be Christians that uh, their coming out is when they betray uh, the, the cause. 
Congratulations. The Bible is no, no offense, honey, but the Bible actually goes so far as to warn against uh, trusting uh, her that lies in your bosom. In other words, your husband, your wife, those that you think you can trust the most. Who can you trust then? Well, the question is aptly answered in one, in one word, Jesus. You can trust Jesus. You can't even trust the apostles themselves because we see that in their lives they failed. Amen. You can trust Jesus. There's no character in the Bible that we, can, that we can say categorically besides Jesus has never failed. They all fail. Now, it doesn't mean that they're all equally treacherous, but they all are human and they make mistakes. They, falled, they failed uh, sometimes to, to stand up for things that they should have, and sometimes they did things that they obviously knew they had no business doing. Now, uh, Judas uh, saying, hold him fast. He, you know, the one I kissed, that's the one. Hold him fast. That proves how much Judas was in the, the driver's seat, doesn't it? He was in charge. They put him in charge of this group of people that he was going to come and betray him. That's how intentional he was at that t time to betray him. Betray him. And so uh, he may have denied it later or wanted to deny it, but the fact is he really was totally in control. And he did repent later about it, but this is what he had to do to get what he wanted. Uh huh. Uh, so... Uh, in verse, in verse uh, 50, uh, Jesus, of course, knew. He says, friend, art thou, wherefore art thou come hither? He calls him a friend. Why did you come? And Jesus knew that this was all coming. And why? But he, he asked Judas, why are you come? Now, Jesus already told us in the gospel story of Matthew itself that he already knew this was going to happen. And he put himself in a situation where it could happen. He wasn't blindsided at all. He actually stood up and said, you know, he that, he that betrays me is at hand. He stood up to go meet the betrayer. He stood up to go tell the people that came to, to take him away, whom seek ye. So he wasn't running away. He wasn't tricked. But uh, he called Judas friend. And the reason I think that he called Judas friend is because he wanted it to be known that Judas, you're still my friend. I love you. It's never been a weakness in God that's caused somebody to fail God. It's never been a paucity of the goodness of God that would be an excuse for someone to walk away from God, to walk away from Jesus, to walk away from the cause. Jesus never fails. His love didn't stop here. And so ultimately, I'm not claiming Jesus is saying that Judas went to heaven because he said it would have been better for that man never to have been born. But from God's side of it, from Jesus' side of it, there was love and opportunity and grace offered, even at this point. Think about that. Isn't that incredible? Amen. Praise God. The love of God is that great. So uh, Luke gives us a little more information, if I can get there in a timely manner, of Luke chapter 22, verse uh, 48. And it says, uh, Judas betrays thou the son of man with a kiss. Now, not only did Judas betray him, and Jesus was offering his friendship, questioning him and letting Judas, you know, give him a moment of introspection. You know, uh, what are you doing? You know, God asked that even at the very beginning. Remember, God asked that uh, to Adam, where are you? God knew where he was. He asked it of Cain, you know. Uh, what, is you, what have you done? God knew all of it. But he's making people stop and consider so that they can say, what have I done? God doesn't ask him that kind of a question 
so that they can be nailed down. He already knows. He could just tell them. But he's trying to invite them to see it the way he does. That's what confession means. Confession means saying with. That means agreeing with God about something so that you can say, okay, you're right, God. I, I had the wrong motives. I did the wrong thing. I disobeyed your word. Now I want to go your way. I want to go the Bible way. But he did it with a kiss. He betrayed him with a kiss. Think about that. You would think that that would be the safest person in the crowd, the one that would kiss Jesus. And I want to tell you something. Affection is cheap and often empty, but loyalty is true worship. Praise God. Loyalty. Loyalty. There's a lot of people that can uh, show outward expressions of religiosity, affections towards God. And I'm not against those. Uh, I would, I'm no more against those. In fact, I'm less against those than I would be against telling somebody not to kiss your wife. Of course. Uh, you show affection for your family members. Show affection for God. The Bible says, praise the Lord. The Bible says, lift up your hands. The Bible says, clap your hands. The Bible says to dance. The Bible says, praise the Lord. Bless the Lord at all times. And let his praise be continually be in your mouth. And everything give thanks. Rejoice in the Lord always. It's replete with, with instruction that yes, God does want and receives worship and praise and affection. However, it's not a substitute for living the life, huh? Amen. And Judas was betraying him. Praises will never replace good living, nor will they pay off bad living. Amen. Um, Jesus, uh, Judas' intent here in his showing of affection was, was to resist Jesus, not to help him out, not to help his cause out. So he was actually showing himself the enemy. And yet, Jesus still called him friend. Now, in John, we have this interesting uh, situation. Honey, I'd like you to get John, uh, John 18, 4 through 6 up on the board, and I'm going to get uh, Psalm 27, uh, verse 2. But uh, what happened th 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 when they came to Jesus and they stumbled and they fell backwards? And why did John include that in his description of what happened? And why is it important that he said, uh, I am he, and then they stumbled and fell backwards? Because that itself is a fulfillment of prophecy. Jesus himself said in John 18, uh, verses 4 through 6. Uh, is it 18? Oh, oh, excuse me. I Actually, I had another one I wanted you to get, but that's okay. This is, that's where I'm talking about, where they fell. So let me read it again. Uh, 18, 4 through 6. Uh, yeah, Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth and said unto them, Whom seek ye? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus saith unto him, I am he. And Jesus, Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with him. As soon as he had said unto them, I am he, they went backward and fell to the ground. So what in the world is that all about? Well, some... You're going to have to quiet her down. Huh? Psalm 27, verse 2 says... When the wicked, even mine enemies and my foes, came upon me to eat up my flesh, they stumbled and fell. And then Psalm 40, verse 14, says, uh, Let them be ashamed and confounded together that seek after my soul to destroy it. Let them be driven backward and put to shame that wish me evil. Well, you have to recognize that, that even the Jews... 
uh, ascribe a lot of these psalms to the Messiah. They're called Messianic psalms. And they say these are speaking about the King Messiah and what would happen to him. So this is a fulfillment of the prophecy that Jesus is the Christ, the one and only. But also, it's a fulfillment that Jesus ultimately is God. Isaiah chapter 8, verses 11 through 15. Isaiah 8, 11 through 15. Starts this way. For the Lord spake thus to me with a strong hand and instructed me that I should not walk in the way of this people, saying, Say ye not a confederacy to all them the people... To all them to whom this people should say confederacy, neither fear ye their fear. But then it says in verse 13, Sanctify the Lord of hosts himself, and let him be your dread. Fear, and let him be your dread. Who are you supposed to sanctify? It means set apart in your heart. God, the Lord, the one and only God. But then read the next verse. And he, who's it talking about? God. He shall be for a sanctuary, but for a stone of stumbling, and for a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel and for a gin and for a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. God had said, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation of stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone. But, you know, but he also said that people would stumble over him. There's the stumbling. He was a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. But he's ultimately God. And God said that he would be the stumbling stone. So John is bringing this out so we can recognize the identity. This man is God in human flesh. The Bible tells us that this man is God with us. That he is God manifest in the flesh. Amen. That all the fullness of the Godhead dwells in him bodily. So, uh, this is obviously Peter, though, that reject, that uh, cut off Malchus' ear, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't mention that it's Peter. And I have a theory about that. You know, the fact that the three synoptics don't mention it is probably because they didn't want Peter to be implicated for the crime. Maybe some of the other disciples ran away partly out of fear for the repercussions of what Peter had done. Oh, we're going to fight, are we? But if they would have said it was Peter, then somebody could come back and said, you're the one that did this crime. You committed this act against the servant of the high priest. But John then would have been written after Peter died. And Peter died. Uh, his death uh, was around A.D. 64 to 68. So the Gospels then of Matthew, Mark, and Luke would have been therefore written before that time. So dispense with the notion that the Gospels were written multiple generations later. That's nonsense. We have too much proof to, to demonstrate from the early church fathers themselves that they had the, 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 the Gospels perfectly written out by their time. But now we've got the time of the 60s uh, themselves where the Gospel of Peter was written. And Peter probably would have died around 62 or 67 years of age. Anyway, in our text, in, uh, in verses 52 and 53, it says, uh, Put up again thy sword into his place, for all they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. Thinkest thou that I cannot now pray to my father, and he shall presently give me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then shall the scriptures be fulfilled, that thus it must be? This passage, this selection of it, bears directly on the idea of using force and, our, and limitations on Christians to use force. 
Jesus himself was the one that had told them to have a sword. Right? He had told them to bring a sword. We'd got that from earlier passages. Peter used the sword. And use of the sword probably restrained all of the disciples from getting arrested. Oh, they're going to fight. It could, it could be, oh, you want to fight, but it could be that, oh, they're going to fight. If we could take Jesus without causing a fight, because you have to remember that even, even the disciples are related to people throughout Israel. They're related to some of the people in the crowd that are coming against Jesus. John himself was part of the high priest family. He wasn't one of them, but he's a relative. So you're messing with the relatives. It's much more politically expedient to just take Jesus. Because you get all these other people tangled up and then you're going to start a problem. There's going to be all kinds of people say, you didn't need to do that if you're just after Jesus. Let's not take... So, but this might be the decisive blow. When Peter did this, it might have sold everybody, okay, you know, uh, we, now we have a pretext to not arrest him because they were going to fight. The Jews later claimed, with no evidence at all, later, later claimed that, uh, the, that the faithful Jews slaughtered a bunch of Christians at this time, that very night. This never happened. There's no, it never happened. They, they tried to claim that. Because they're trying to claim that, you know, nobody really believed in Jesus, which is nonsense. The apostles themselves were Jews. Of course, the Jews believed in him. But anyway, um, Jesus stopped Peter at one, at one stroke. He said, suffer it thus far. In Luke chapter 22, verse 51, he said, suffer it thus far. He said, that's the end of it. He wanted it to happen, but then he ended it. And then what did he do? The Bible tells us that he healed the man's ear. He healed Malchus' ear. So Malchus, you know, didn't have to suffer forever. And, uh, and then Jesus warned against living by the sword. He said, they that live by the sword shall die by the sword. In other words, violence versus trust in God. So, uh, you know, so this way I put it, trust God, but pack heat. In other words, you want to you want to protect your family. God may use you to protect your family, but ultimately, who's your trust in? Your trust is in God. Can we uh, for further Christianity through violence? Absolutely not. Is nothing scriptural or acceptable about uh, brutalizing other people to force them to believe the gospel. You're not doing them a favor. You're not doing the gospel a favor. You're only making it look bad to anybody of a true conscience that says, hey, you know, they're killing for it. I thought this was whosoever will. Now you're coercing people to do it. And that's a different thing. So there's no business burning anybody at the stake, hanging them, you know. You don't need to denigrate their character even. You can just simply say that they're wrong if you disagree with them. But um, Jesus didn't want his people to be violent or to die by violent warfare. All right? And um, persecution, well, that might be different, but, you know, he didn't himself go out and fighting or trying to pick a fight. Jesus and us, we can escape persecution if God wanted it, but there's the part of trust where you believe God's going to deliver you from persecution and then there's the part of trust that's, that's much more strong where you, believe, you trust God through persecution. Where you know that God has a purpose for your suffering. You can trust God that, oh, I trust God, I'm never going to get sick. Or you can trust God that when you do get sick, that God still got this in control. That God still loves you and that God still going to, has a wonderful plan for your eternity. And I think we need to have both kinds of trust. 
And I don't think one is going to be against the other, but Jesus demonstrated that we could, he could trust. He said, you know, I could call uh, you know, all these angels down and they'd deliver us, but that's not what I'm going to do. So he recognized also that evil has its hour. You need to recognize that. He said, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. He didn't say that from now on, Satan, you're in charge. He didn't say, oh, oh, you win. Now you're crucifying me. I'm the Lord of glory and you're going to win. He didn't say that. He said, this is your hour and the power of darkness. It means it's a limited time in which they would be able to operate. Certainly it was more than just one hour. That's not the point of the word hour. The hour there means this is their time. They have a time. So evil has its time. Understand that. The gospel, the Bible is not rejecting of that notion. It actually tells us about evil times to come. Paul says that in the last days, perilous times shall come. If you read the book of Revelation, you know that God is ultimately in control and you know that God knows all about the bad times that are coming. Jesus warned us in Matthew chapter 24 about the bad times that were coming on the earth. Right? But that doesn't mean that that's his ultimate will. He, he, he actually admits that that's the power of darkness. Why? Because Satan had wrestled God to the ground and was winning some kind of cosmic battle? Absolutely not. But because God has to allow evil to play out its course so that it can identify itself, and those that are going to be evil will be known for what they are. So if you're vexed about politics and all the crazies doing their silly stuff, I will say, number one, a lot of them are just duped. A lot of them don't know what they're doing. But number two, a lot of them are evil and they need to be defined for what they are. You need to see them for what they are. And maybe the American people will be moral enough. Maybe they will be untricked enough to be able to recognize what's going on and vote in the, right, in the way to get these kinds of people out of control. Those that would you know, furnish the, the, the rationale and, and, and applaud those that tear down uh, you know, public uh, statues and burn businesses and th do things like that. Uh, do we really want them? Do we want to entrust with them the public safety? I don't think that we should trust people with public safety that don't institute public safety. If they think somebody has a right to come and steal uh, our private property or burn our business, I don't think that we would logically vote for such a person because the foundational function of government is to protect us from one another. That's the biblical reason for government. Not so that they can be furnished with ability to hurt us, but he recognized that evil has its hour. But he didn't bow to it. And he certainly, certainly didn't fear it. And he knew that ultimately it would turn to joy. Luke chapter 22, verse 53 says, um, When I was daily with you in the temple, you stretched forth no hands against me, but this is your hour in the power of darkness. But then John chapter 16, verses 20 through 22 says, Verily, verily, I say unto you that ye shall weep and lament, but the world shall rejoice and ye shall be sorrowful, but your sorrow shall be turned into joy. He said, there's going to be hard times in your life, but you're going to have those times turned into joy. Why? He says, he explains, a woman when she is in travail hath sorrow, you know, when she's giving birth, because her hour is come, but as soon as she is delivered of the child, she remembereth no more the anguish for joy that a man is born into the world. And ye now therefore have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart shall rejoice, and your joy no man taketh from you. If Jesus had not been crucified, we would not have forgiveness, and we would never know that he was the Son of God. The pain was needful. Thank God for the blood. Amen? 
So verse 54 says, but how then shall the scripture be fulfilled that thus it must be? In other words, doing God's will had become Jesus' final answer at Gethsemane. He wasn't changing it. He went willfully to the cross. He wasn't dragged there kicking and screaming. God's will is scripted also according to the word of God. You can't find the will of God outside it. How did Jesus know that this was the will of God? As a man, well, of course, in his closest to God, he would have known anyway spiritually, but as a man, he could also point to the scriptures to prove it. Some people fight for something being the will of God that they have no merit to say it's the will of God. They have no scripture to prove that that's the will of God. They just decide that God told them, them, them something and therefore that God has to do whatever they decide God told them. And I don't know what level of deception they're at, whether it's all coming from them or demons or what. But I'm just telling you, God's never going to tell you to do something that the word of God forbids. Amen, people. So he questions the multitude. He says, are you come out as against a thief with swords and staves to take me? I was daily with you in the temple and you took, you know, didn't take me then. So he questions their, multi, their uh, you know, motives. They were being cowardly, weren't they? They didn't want to do it during broad daylight when he was in the temple. Why? Because the people liked what he was saying. They wanted to hear him. So the vast majority of the people around Jesus, they liked him. And so these people did not represent everybody. We've had detractors in the gospel preaching that we face, people that think that they want, they want to pretend that they speak for everybody. You know? And they'll say, well, one, one guy said, how dare you come to this town and tell people they can't live the way that they've been living all this time? Well, I don't know how to tell you, but that man was, uh, was a middle-aged drunk that all the work that he could find was cutting blackberries down. And he drove an old beat-up jalopy of a Jeep and couldn't find enough work even then. He didn't speak for everybody in Brookings. Amen. He didn't certainly speak for God. And so don't let the voices of few detractors distract you from the voices of somebody that's crying in their closet, God, show me. Show me the way, Lord. I want to be saved. Somebody wants to know the gospel. Somebody wants to be right with Jesus. Amen. Amen. So keep on keeping on. Anyway, they were doing uh, what the majority then didn't want. This, this crowd here was doing what the other crowd didn't want. In other words, I would say the same thing about people that are burning down businesses. I would say most people would say, no, I don't want you to burn down that poor person's business or even a rich person's business. I don't want you overturning cars. We don't need to tear down statues of Ulysses S. Grant. How in the world is that against racism? Grant was the soldier from the North that actually caused the Civil War to be won for the North so that the slaves could be set free. How does that make a lick of sense to tear down Grant's statue? Oh, it's all white oppression. Even the white men that fought for him, you know, they're so convoluted. But they don't speak for everybody. And be heartened. Most people don't feel the way that these people are feeling. They're trying to program people into thinking that everybody's with them, but we don't need to fall for it. We need to say, hey, I don't agree with that. That's nonsense. They're trying to form a consensus, which doesn't exist. And that's the, form, the same consensus they attempted to form when they, said, they got the mob to say, crucify Jesus. They were stirred up, the Bible says, by the chief priests. So Jesus obviously wasn't a robber and a thief. He said, you came out like a robber, against a robber and a thief, like you have to take me violently, you know. 
His teachings were acceptable and indeed desirable to many, and they are to this day. No rabbi should be treated the way that they treated Jesus if he was merely just a teacher. He put up no fight for himself and didn't ask for help from others to put up a fight for himself. I've already explained away the use of that one sword, and then he healed the man. But compare that to the death of Joseph Smith, shoot, trying to shoot his way out of, out of jail. And the last words that he said is, there no help for the widow's son. That is a classic phrase that Masons use to ask fellow Masons for help in their cause. So now we know that Joseph Smith, not only did his life courted Masonry, but he tried to Masonry call at the last of his death, and he was shooting people on his way out of this world. What a great prophet he was. Same with Muhammad. You know how Muhammad died? What a great prophet. Muhammad went to war. He slaughtered a bunch of people uh, violently in a, in a Jewish uh, conclave that he had made a treaty with, a truce with. He slaughtered them. He slaughtered uh, 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 this one woman's husband and, and father. He killed them. To, uh, and uh, then she offered to make him a meal. And he foolishly ate it. And she poisoned him. And he died a painful death, a long, agonizing death because of the poison. He had said before he died, he said, if I'm a liar, Allah will cut my aorta. That's just the way they would talk about cut, you know, killing him. If I'm a liar, if I'm a deceiver, if I'm not true, if I'm not faithful, Allah will cut my aorta. But in the agony of his, of the, 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 the disease that was caused by the destruction of his internal organs that was caused by the poison, uh, he said, Allah has cut my aorta. Again and again he said that. How ironic. That one prophecy he got right. That if he was a false prophet, God would kill him and he, it did die. But why did he die? Because he caused the death of other people. You see what I'm saying? He went out not directly as a, man, as, as a result of warfare, but because of the hostility that he showed to other people. Contrast that with Jesus. Who did he ever hurt? Come on, I'm waiting. He didn't hurt anybody. So uh, that's the nature of our Jesus, and that's the way that he, he, we should be. Now, he was obviously uh, long available for capture and had no intent uh, to run at this point either. He had long been available to be caught. caught and, and so but he just walks up and says, okay, here I am, basically. His disciples would ever know after this, because of the way that he surrendered, that he willingly gave what they violently, violently took. It wasn't like, oh no, please stop, no, oh, let go of me. No, I don't want to do this. He not, no. He was led like a lamb, like a sheep to the slaughter. So opened he not his mouth. He gladly and willingly went. That tells us how much he loves us. Praise God. Their hostility. In other words, even uh, their, their, their hostility itself. In, in, in putting him to death, only underscored his great honor. What an honorable, what a righteous person he was and is. John sixteen thirty two. Blessed, uh, behold, the hour cometh and is now come, that ye shall be scattered every man to his own and shall leave me alone. And yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd and against the man that is my fellow, saith the Lord of hosts. Smite the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered and I will turn my hand upon the little ones. 
Even the fact that the disciples ran away is foretold. Jesus knew it from Scripture. Jesus knew it himself personally. So he asked this question, so what about those disciples? You know, they all ran. Can we trust them? Well, people, we all fall short. Everybody falls short. All have sinned and, and fallen short of the glory of God. But God has a plan to justify us and forgive us. The gospel isn't about our integrity, but the gospel is about the gift of God found in Jesus Christ alone. It's not in Paul. It's not in Peter. It's not in John. It's not in Mark. It's not in Luke. It's not in any of those apostles. It's not in Mary. It's found only, exclusively, and solely in Jesus Christ. Acts 4.12 says it this way, For there is no salvation in any other name. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. We need to focus our eyes on Christ. We need to get a focus on Jesus as the sole object. And when you look at Jesus, Jesus said you will be looking at the Father. He said, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the identity of God come in human flesh. You want to know what God is like, then you take a look at what Jesus was like and you understand the loving character of God put into a human form. Of course, God never had to be a servant to anybody as God. But when he became a man, he did it right and had the right attitude and the right love and everything because that's what God is like. So you get a picture of not only what God's like, but you also get a picture of the will of God. Jesus came preaching the kingdom of God. In other words, the things that happen in this world, that's the kingdom of this world. That's the kingdom of darkness. It has its time. But Jesus came to tell us about another time, the kingdom of God, when the kingdom of God comes. And he gave us a taste of that. When he healed the sick, he raised the dead, he opened the blinded eyes. When he caused people that were demon-possessed to be set free. This is the Jesus that we're supposed to be focused on. The disciples, the apostles went everywhere. They didn't preach themselves. They didn't preach the church. They didn't preach sacraments. They preached Jesus Christ. The sacraments and the church things came because of Jesus Christ. It was always about Jesus Christ. Even the detractors from Christianity in reporting on them said that they have a peculiar religion whereby it seems that they do nothing particularly bad, but they meet early in the morning while it is yet dark to break to, to share a communal meal and to pray to Jesus Christ as God and to take a new a, a, a renewed vow every morning to uh, to be uh, you know to not do harm to any man. Interesting, huh? It's about Jesus. When you go to heaven, there's only one throne. There's only one throne. The Bible tells it very clear. There's only one throne. There's only one that sits on the throne. It doesn't have three heads either. Just one that sits on the throne. Now, who is that one that sits on the throne? Well, we say well, it was God the Father. But Jesus said, be seated with my Father in his throne. How is he with his Father in the throne? Is he sitting on his lap? Is it a couch? No, it's just one sitting on the throne. He's enthroned in his, in his humanity. God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, and is forever in Christ. The, light, the Lamb is the light of Eternity. He is the, le the, the light of the city. He's always going to be that way. We'll recognize God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so Paul put it this way, that uh, we see the glory of God shining 
in the face of Jesus Christ. This is how God made himself and his character palpable to humanity to show us the depth of his character and his great love. Let's pray. Father, I ask you to help us today in Jesus' name to be true Christians, Lord, to follow after you, to be faithful to you.